Hey everyone, Steve here. Today's episode is a little bit different. It's a conversation with four former AOL staff members. They have a combined 35 years of experience working at AOL. We'll be hearing about some of the challenges that they faced, their proudest moments, the culture, why they ultimately left AOL, and what they're up to these days. Also, there might be some hacking stories. Hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to AOL. Welcome to AOL Underground. My name is Craig Brocke. Uh, I worked at AOL from 1995 to 1999. That's uh, exactly four years, which is the amount of time it takes to completely vest the uh, stock options that I was given. <laughs> I actually uh, worked at some other interesting companies along the way. I worked at GTE Telenet during the time that they were implementing the first X25 network, which is the precursor to the TCP IP network that is the internet today. I uh, helped maintain their trouble reporting system where they tracked problems with that network. I worked also for a subsidiary of DHL Worldwide Courier while they were implementing the first real-time package scanning codes to track package shipments all through the shipping process. And from 1985 to 1995, that was right before AOL, I worked for a large publishing group called UCG, United Communications Group. They had a Stratus computer system that they used for real-time tracking of gas and oil price information. So at AOL, I was a senior systems administrator for the newly created test systems. I worked with Mark Serif, one of the, uh, was he one of the originating employees? He was the founder. He was a, one of the founders? Yeah. He and Kimsey and, well, anyway, they're the ones who put the money in. Steve was a first employee and so was Ralston. And I didn't mean to quite jump in like that, but... <laughs> Yeah, no worries. So I was a senior systems administrator uh, at, at AOL, and uh, I worked with Mark Serif on a, on a day-to-day basis. We had 35 little mini AOL systems, one for each subsystem that made up AOL. There was like an AOL mail test system and an AOL chat system. And uh, that's uh, the gist of it. Uh, there were other things along the line, but that's a good brief bio of my time there. Um, Jan, you ready to go? I'm Jan DeLucian, and I started at AOL a year after it had gone online, but as Q-Link. It was Commodore only, Commodore 64, in fact, before we developed the 128 version of it. And it was only from 7 a.m. until 6 p.m. at night until 6 a.m. in the morning for the East Coast, 7 to 7 for the others, although it was six to six to them. And the way we would do that, it was we would literally bounce the system in the morning at six o'clock so that all the East Coast couldn't get on. And then at the next hour, bounce it again to get rid of all the others in that zone. And so we did that four different times each morning. The hackers would crash it from time to time, (laughs) uh, usually on the weekends. Um, once in a while during the weeknight. And, you know, it was the same thing. It was, we called them Q-terrorists and Q-kitties. 
and they would go into a chat room and start scrolling the screen with characters until everybody decided or course words or whatever until everybody decided okay it's no worth being in this public room and they would either find private rooms to go to or they just disconnect they were paying per hour to use quantum link at that point so they're not going to sit around there you know while people are just scrolling the screen and they can't talk with their friends and they used to have fun talking with their friends in fact that's how i caught one of the hackers um, he was trying to make arrangements with his girlfriend and I kicked him off roughly five minutes before the end of the, you know, before everything was going to get bounced anyway. And so he actually had to sign back in with his real account so that he could finish talking to her. And that's how we caught him. <laughs> what was he doing that was so nefarious? Actually credit card fraud. Wow. Every time they logged in, it would be with a bogus card. And the only way we could track them was by the note that they came in on. There were thousands of dollars that were being stolen. It was, we were using a time-shared network system. So we had to pay for every hour that somebody was online. Now, of course, we passed on the cost to the user with markup. <laughs> but... Um, you know, there were thousands of dollars there. And when the Mounties in Canada picked them up, they actually had them on $50,000 worth of credit card fraud for purchases they'd made, you know, or he'd made on other things. And he was 15 years old. <laughs> wow. So he did not have $50,000. <laughs> no. And I don't know why his parents were oblivious to these things that showed up at the house, but not for me to wonder why. <laughs> but it was, he was a particular thorn in my side because I could never stop him. And I was a particular thorn in his side. He didn't know my name, but he knew that I was like after him. And there'd be times where he'd try to sneak on from another direction so to speak or another card or switch to a different node after the system bounce but i could still find it because there were ways that they use the system you know you can tell how a friend's talking in an email and you can tell when it doesn't sound like them things like that so it was a blast <laughs> oh wow like, like linguistics right like almost like the like the fbi's like behavioral analysis unit like you were doing some exactly stuff right <laughs> mm-hmm but all it was was me, my brain, and a pencil and paper log. And of course, that was back in the modem days. It would be a lot harder to use my tips and tricks or the way I did it now in the internet age where you can bounce off 50 million servers wherever to get where you want to go. But it was cool. It was fun. And I'd love to meet up with this guy someday. And yeah, he'd be like in his 50s now just to hear his stories from the other side of how he was getting around it, how he was able to stay on for five days before I found him. <laughs> you know, he was probably thoroughly enjoying himself until you uh, ruined his whole probably month or year. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have to agree. And he figured out I was behind Jenny C email. So he started sending Jenny C who was the fake name for our customer service. So he started sending mail. I'm going to get you. I'm going to destroy your credit. I'm going to, you know, and um, 
I, I remember one time I really got him pissed off and he, he came on and grabbed a bunch of his friends and they tried to crash the system. But because I kicked him off with a message, gotcha. So there, <laughs> I was not very old then either. <laughs> so I blame it on my youth. <laughs> but, um, but then everybody came in on the next wave and tried to craft the system, but I was able to find them too with the same reasons. <laughs> That's great. And kicked them all off and the system recovered. That's when they decided that we could see into their private chat rooms and see what they were saying. But it wasn't. It was just everybody who dived into here has no address, has invalid phone number. So I kicked off the accounts, but I couldn't see into the room. I couldn't even tell the name of the room. So interesting. I loved my time at AOL until I didn't. And then I retired and started my own genealogy business, which was one of my other passions. And thought that if you're doing a genealogy business, you can actually work on your own genealogy, but you don't have time to do it. <laughs> and eventually got dragged back, kicking and screaming to another little small company where it had sneaker net. And loved it. And, you know, QA, testing, product development was my bliss. And I was lucky enough to live it for 35 years until I hit my head. <laughs> and logic and analysis went that way. Hearing and speech kind of went that way. I'm a lot better than I was five years ago. Okay. It is really cool to hear things from this angle. Brian Teague speaking. Because I, when I started at AOL, I started in 1992. Um, it was fresh off the IPO. It was fresh off the launch of AOL 1.0, um, which ran in the Geos framework. And we were told in customer service that AOL was unhackable because of the P3 protocol that we used. Um, and that went on for, I don't know, about six months while I was getting my feet wet and getting really acquainted with things. And then we started hearing about the fives. The fives were a thorn in our sides for many years. And as I progressed through from customer service, um, I helped to take our customer service live, which used to run only two hours in the evening, to expand that, to run it basically any time that our customer service center was open. From there, uh, I got somebody paid attention to me and said, oh, can we borrow you to become a computer operator? Now, at the time I became a computer operator, there was no central network operations center at AOL. We had two groups that did systems monitoring. Um, one ran out of our customer service group and the other ran out of our computer operations group. The computer operations group handled both our office computing and our computer room floor. That was later to be split out probably about the time that we launched our new mail system that was written by Jay Levitt. And when Mark Seraph and Jay Levitt got together, um, they just hired Matt Korn as the director of operations. They were launching the new system. It was 9 a.m. It was I was almost off because I worked overnights at that time. And I got to watch them dribble the mail system on the floor for several minutes. And I'm, I'm looking at the logs and I'm seeing this one message too many files open right before the mail system crashed. And that happened over and over and over again. 
Finally, I went upstairs, found where everybody was in their war room, knocked on the door and said, don't know if anybody's noticed this, but in the logs, there's a little message about too many files open right before the mail system crashes every time. Mark Seraph looks up from his computer, looks at me, points at me and says, get that man a job. And apparently Matt Korn listened because I was called into his office mm, a couple weeks later with an offer to become the manager of the yet to be formed Network Operations Center. And I had all kinds of fun trying to figure out what we were going to be called until I was told that, no, we would be called the Network Operations Center. The Knock. <laughs> the Knock, yes. What were the, some of the names that you were planning? Well, I was thinking, you know, systems monitoring and operations group so we could do smog alerts. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. Yeah, there's no way he would have let that one go. That is so good. Oh, but it would have been so awesome. He, he did inform me that it would have been a career-limiting choice. And so I, I did follow his directions on that. And I set up the Network Operations Center. I wrote the run book. I trained, I, I hired and trained almost 50 people um, that staffed the, center, staffed the Network Operations Center 24-7. I then went out to each of the development teams to talk with them and, and see what we could do about offloading some of their responsibilities. Because at that time, we were still small enough that a lot of our development team was also our operations team. Um, we were just starting to build our real operations team. And that was really kind of led by Ken Huntsman and, and Janet Hunter. Um, and, and letting go of some of the installation stuff mm -hmm. that I was doing. You actually had Mark's attention even before that. Really? Because when you were working with the customer service groups, you were also, and I quite remember it with Glee, trying to help us find bugs. But so you were already on his radar because I would use your name every time you found something. Oh, wow. So you, you solidified it. That was, that was it. <laughs> Well, that's, that's, that's really great to know. Um, I, I didn't interact a whole lot with Mark Serif. Most of my interaction was within the operations framework. So I dealt more with Ken Huntsman and Janet Hunter. One of my favorite stories about Ken Huntsman is the day that he came into the Network Operations Center. And he started out with, oh my God, looking at you guys from where we were even two years ago, I am so impressed with everything that you're doing. But I do need to let you guys know one thing that's very, very important, and that is my wife used to be able to troubleshoot most of AOL and do it very well. Um, however, the system's grown enough now that you probably need to talk to me and not to her. So just ask for me when she answers, because he went on to tell us about her ability to troubleshoot. And, and she was never, I don't think she was ever actually employed by AOL. But she and Ken would sit there and look at issues and figure out problems together and, and resolve them. So she had a lot of that knowledge. I wish I could have like taken and, and gotten some of that knowledge transfer from her because I think that it would have made the Network Operations Center even better. Um, we hired Jeff Bushy, who was our head security person at AOL for a long time. And that was then now circling back to Fives again because he made it his job to find out every time fives came on and to get them off as quickly as possible. I think he got it down to about two minutes, two minutes from login. What's fives? Fives, there was some kind of bug in either our P3 protocol or 
in our login system itself that allowed someone with, I think it was 12 fives to override the password field and, and it would actually log them in. So you didn't need a credit card, you didn't need anything else. And you could just run rampant because you basically had essentially super admin rights because you could go anywhere, you could do anything. You could only see what we could see, but we can see a lot too. You're talking about them going online and seeing everything. Yes, online. Not in the stratus. Not in not in the backend systems. Just as a, a regular account, but just as each of our forum areas had a forum leader, and that forum leader had a lot of privileges to go in and delete messages or comment them or or yeah. whatever. The that fives person had all of those same right. No, just as an account. Even if they didn't utilize yeah. them all that often. Anything we were admins of online, they could get to. They were constantly trying to hack my account because I was familiar from a beta test management thing. But they were always trying to fish our accounts because they could. They wanted to know what cool thing was coming next so that they could find it, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know. There were always a lot of cool things in beta or in our testing. Something about Ken Huntsman while you were talking about him that has nothing to do with uh, with actual AOL, but he was vacationing in a ski resort area. Uh, and what he didn't realize was that there was a very famous family in the area that contributed money all over the place so that they were you know, well taken care of by the last name of Huntsman. And Ken uh, had a bit of an accident on the ski slope and had just had a little bit of a scalp injury, but they look really bad, of course. Whenever they asked his name and he said it was Ken Huntsman, they assumed that it was the famous Huntsman family. They flew in medevac helicopters. They, they, he had no idea why they were giving him such incredibly wonderful treatment until he found out that there was the famous Huntsman family in that area. <laughs> But he, I remember him telling us about that. Uh, he got t- treated royally while he was there. <laughs> That's great. Wow. Uh, the twelve five. So was that put in a username field or something, and then like no password or? I don't know how they got, actually got online. All I can tell you is the the anecdotal after effects, and what I was able to glean from from what our security people would tell me. Which, if you've dealt with security people, you know they don't share a whole lot. <laughs> Um, was that Airsy? <laughs> <laughs> Need to know. It was our test credit card number that we could use. Oh. But we needed a way to be able to test credit cards without burning them. There was literally a line of code in there that said, if it's this, let them in. Yeah, it was, it was part of the credit card test environment. It's one of those things where they always tell you, don't hard code. Guess what we did? We hard coded. <laughs> This would be a good time to let Ersi uh, introduce herself since she's not, we did not get a chance yet. <laughs> this is Ersi Stern. I started at AOL in 1995 and I left AOL in 2007. Exactly 12 years to the day. I started on October 16th and I left on October 16th. Um, I was part of the great layoff of 2007. Um but I was interviewed by both Brian Teague and George Boyce and was competed over by both of them for positions. Uh, I started with George in what was then the web team. 
Uh, we were putting out pretty much every web server we possibly could as fast and as furious as we could. Put out AOL.com, A0L.com, A01.com, A01.com, you know, all the permutations, Steve Case, Steve C, blah, 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 all the different things. And then we had the public customers, folks like Food TV, who as much as we tried to explain to them that an open anonymous FTP was not a smart thing to do, they had to have it so that their customers could post recipes and could share photographs of the things that they cooked. And uh, Brian, were you there the night that I crashed Pager server? Um, I don't remember. Um, that- I remember that distinctly because this was still back this was in the 90s, so this was still back in pagers prior to cell phones. I was using a utility back then called Swatch, and it was triggered to go off whenever Wear software popped up. And it had been, the Food TV server in particular had been inundated, just the entire FTP partition had been inundated with Microsoft wares and gaming wares and you name it wares. And my pager just started going off around 1130 at night and just kept going off and kept going off. And the knot contacted me and said, what's going on? And I said, I've got software. And Jeff, uh, Jeff Bushy contacted me and said, what's going on? Because he was my, my matrix manager at the time. And he's like, we've got where software. And then the knot called me back and said, okay, stop it. You just crashed the pager server. <laughs> I'd said something like 10,000 pages to the pager server and it literally fell over. So, and my pager just kept vibrating its way. It fell off my desk. It was going down the floor. Um, I, I eventually just took batteries out of it because there was nothing I could do for that poor thing. Um, and I spent, you know, most of the night, you know, we had somebody trying to contact the customer because of course you can't do certain acts, actions without really talking to the customer. And so we're trying to reach the customer to say, look, we have to shut this down because, you know, you've got illegal software out there, you know, trying to explain to them that this is not, this is why we were telling you, you shouldn't be doing this. And, and oh no, they had to keep it open. So then they had to rewrite using Swatch and then start writing scripts on, okay, if you see this, delete it, if you see this, delete it. And it just, you know, we could never specifically find, you know, because it's anonymous FTP, you can't necessarily find who's putting the software up there. But we ended up, you know, just defensive strategies to take it down. So that was kind of my real first introduction to security, uh, was dealing with, with web servers of all the stripes that we had and, and stuff that was being put in FTP and, and attempts to log in and attempts to hack via things like FTP and via Telnet and, and all the open services that we really didn't know about securing and securing very well because this was the Wild West. It was brand new. Um, so that's that's where I started. And then I moved over to the test. We called it the test P. It was uh, all of the AOL services were collected into things called pods, which were kind of a subset of the entire system in a nutshell or in a peapod, as we called it. And so we had one that was for the test, for the test environment. And I was doing project management and security auditing there. And from there, I went on to project management. And then I went back into management. And then I was doing a lot of the same kind of management stuff at the end of my career there. But the focus had changed from web content 
with wares to web content with images and music and articles because I was now dealing with Reuters and AP and you know all the all the big name commercial clients and making sure that their data was actually coming in and not being corrupted on on the way in or not being corrupted by third party intervention and and stuff like that and so there was it was getting a lot more interesting as the tools were getting more interesting and working with a lot of the you know starting to get involved with the networking vendors to work with the the secure firewalls and and gateway tools and devices that were out there and now um, after I left AOL I've been working mostly in the government sector, doing lots of Linux sysadmin and lots of Linux security. I'm officially a certified ethical hacker for what it's worth, but I like playing both red hat and blue hat. And I just think it's fun. I, I think it's lots of fun to to find the holes, patch the holes, break break the systems. I just, I think it's really challenging. So And it's fun. That's me in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, you know, if, if I didn't get laid off at AOL, I would have stayed. I mean, I was I was in a happy place. So I really liked AOL and working there. I had an absolute blast, but I had a siren song for uh, cruising. And so I left in 1999 and took seven years to cruise around the Caribbean, the north coast of South America, um, through the Panama Canal and out to the Galapagos Islands. And then we were headed north to Seattle. But after five years uh, near the equator, we decided that it was way too cold at Puerto Vallarta. So we we decided to settle in San Diego instead. And since then, um, I've done a couple of different things. Now I'm, I work for a private university out here as their senior web administrator. So I work with a small web team to deal with the forward-facing web servers for the university. AOL was by far my best work experience. I loved it there. I loved the people there. There, there was nothing I did not love about that place. Um, Jan was one of my mentors. Ersi, uh, I tried to hire her, and she went over to George. <laughs> then I went over to George and, and got her. Um, and she wound up working for me for almost the entire time I was under George. Very true. Our little system security group that we put together streamlined the server builds for all of those web servers that ARC has been talking about. Um, between her and Gerald and who was the other person? Do you remember, ARC? You're talking about Bill? It might have been Bill. Bill Acker? Yeah, maybe. It was it was the four of us. We we put together the criteria for the Golden Master for the yeah. server disk, um, and it had all of the security tools that you wanted on it. Um, mm-hmm. It had all of the connecting connections for alerts, and then from my time in the Network Operations Center, I made sure to include information about that as well. So from our internet operation standpoint from web server basis we had always been well tied into the knot that was that was really nice then after our group got reorganized and they took everything that we had done and dropped it into a systems integration group i moved over to enterprise management and ursi you went to work for jeff bushy at that point didn't you yeah that's when we did test p and security exactly So the ending point for me was really um, participating in the Y2K. <laughs> oh, that was so much fun, though. 
You know, it, it really was. And I knew we were going to be fine, but there was no way in hell I was still going to be working for AOL come, you know, January 1st, 2000. Oh, it was just fine. <laughs> I left at the same time before we all talk about leaving AOL. There's a, a couple of anecdotes that I uh, that I really enjoy. I'd like to share. You know, so we've already ascertained that Mark Seraf is one of the founding members of AOL. So he was a, you know, placed pretty highly in the company and he was had a lot of hands on in the uh, the test systems area. Uh, so I had daily access to Mark Seraf and we worked together and and it was an easy person to talk to. I had lunch with him on a number of occasions and I had one of the um, programmers bring a problem to me. And after looking at it, I said, well, the right person to answer this question is you need to go and talk to uh, Mark Seraf. And he, his eyes got really wide and he looked at me and he said, I can't talk to him. <laughs> and I said, why not? He goes, uh, He's a god. <laughs> I said, I said, what? He said, Mark Seraph's a god. And I said, I've never heard that before. Um, I said, well, he may be, but he's very approachable. And this, he's the person you have to talk to about this. Oh, I couldn't do that. <laughs> I, I assured him that I spoke to this God every day and that he was quite approachable. <laughs> uh, so apparently we, we also held our top employees, our founding members in quite high regard. <laughs> Another thing that was, um, that was fun was when I hired on, they, they were, I believe AOL hired close to 5,000 technical people that we were we were on a huge hiring thrust and a lot of those technical people were hired on with stock options and and it was pretty well known that uh, that if you were given good stock options that there was a chance that you could become a millionaire based on that uh, especially in the Northern Virginia area. And I sat down with Mark Seraph at lunch one time, and it was a year or two into my stay there. And he said, lamented the fact that he says that it's unlikely that AOL was producing any more millionaires. He was saying, you know, that kind of sucked. And I said, I wouldn't be so sure of that, Mark. And, you know, like out of a movie, I grabbed a, a napkin over and turned it over and took my pen out of my pocket. And I said, you know, I was given 4,000 shares of stock for $12 a share. And I started doing the math. I said, AOL had this thing, whatever, if their stock got to be about $85 a share, they would split it because they believe that, uh, that the average AOL user should be able to afford a share of stock. And they put that around $85. So if, if the stock was selling for $85, they would split it. So my 4,000 shares of stock would turn into 8,000 shares of stock the $12 would turn into $6. All right. And I said, Mark, do you believe that there's four or five more uh, splits in the company? He said, I think so. So we did the math, you know, 4,000, 8,000, 16,000. And by the time we got into the number of splits there, I uh, was at um, $8 million and uh, selling my stock would be selling for about six cents, I believe, or three cents a share. I, just, I sat down and did the math before here and I just misplaced the piece of paper. Um, and he said, wow, 
you're right. There, there are. So in, in 1996, AOL was still producing some number of millionaires. I wish that had been me. Um, and these were not your standard ones. These were, you know, torn blue jeans and, um, and T-shirts. Going into um, wealth management companies like Merrill Lynch and talking to, you know, financial consultants, you know, who they actually had to talk to their financial consultants and tell them, do not disparage or turn away someone just because they come in dressed like, you know, blue jeans and t-shirts, <laughs> because those people can be worth millions of dollars. <laughs> um, it was a good time to work there. You could make a lot of money. Also, by the way, eight, $8 million, whenever you are uh, at that uh, time, turns into about $4 million when you get it. The rest of it goes to taxes. Um, so the money goes pretty quickly whenever you're that, that age and you're enjoying it. Um, the biggest thing it did for me is it let me buy a really nice house in California uh, without uh, having to have a mortgage on it. And that has carried down the line to my retirement. I have my, my home has always been without a mortgage on it. And uh, uh, that's that's the bait. That's my legacy with AOL. It uh, it's paid for my house <laughs> through the years. <laughs> I have an interesting Mark Serif story from the early days. I was employee number 45. And we kept a list after a while of, of all the numbers and so forth. But at that point, I was still a very lowly, very new 45. I'd been doing the Jenny C. I'd been arguing with the hackers and stuff. And I kept telling them, Mark, I said, I know how they're doing it. No, 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 no. You can't possibly know what it is. And I would call Tom Ralston, who was our VP of operations then. He was the one who managed the server rooms and was the only one who did it, except with Ken and Chris's help. But I called him and I'm like, look, the system is going down. And he's like, has it stopped yet? Well, no, but it's, it's getting there. It's, it's slowing down. And he goes, call me if it stops. An hour and a half later, I called him. Okay, now it's stopped. Could you come in and restart it? <laughs> so he did. And every Friday evening, we used to have either a beer bash or back then, everybody would go down to the Cafe American and have... <laughs> some drinks and stuff like that. Um, so I'd been gone for four days. I came back. It was a Friday night and they were already started on the system as like 10 o'clock and it's already starting to go down. So I of course paged Tom and what I didn't know until everybody showed up in my office was that Tom turned around the page when he says, damn, Jan's back. Right. <laughs> And so they all decided to come down and see what was going on. And they agreed that, yes, the system is going down. Let's bounce everybody off and bring it back up. And they did. And it worked fine. But after that, I was determined. And so I started making all these notes and went in Monday morning to Mark's office and said, okay, I think this is what's happening. This is what I saw. And he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. You I mean, I was a customer service manager. You don't know what you're talking about. So I went back. The next night I was, Steve, you may not remember what line printers look like, <laughs> but I was spooling the log to this line printer so I could show them, look, see, this Commodore character keeps coming out. Wait, what's a line printer? <laughs> Just like tailing a log file? 
It's like a TV, but it's it's made of paper. These were the old <laughs> days when they had these huge legal size, more than legal size, more like map size printers with a green line and a white line and a green line and a white line. And you would print everything on the printer and you could line things up that way. Oh, interesting. Okay, so you have a hard copy. On paper. It's paper. That's great. Yeah, and it just folded itself into a box. Yeah, it's your console window, except on a printer. Right. <laughs> Continuous feed dot matrix printer. That, that seems useful. So I took this stack of printouts that I had made and walked into Mark's office again the next morning. It was about eight something. I had all my documentation all lined up and, you know, pointed at each other and everything else. And he listens to me politely for a few minutes. <laughs> and then he's like, I've had enough of this. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, okay. So that night I stopped the system from crashing. I kicked everybody off and I kept the records. <laughs> what it looked like before, what it looked like after, the list of the room, you know, the screen that showed where they all were, showed where I kicked them off. I was hot shit. I went into his office the next day to show this all to him. And he threw me out very fast. <laughs> what I found out five years later, my daughter was in with me testing. It's about 14 years old. And we were sitting there trying to test super process, an infrastructure program. And Ken was the one who'd made the changes. So I saw something. So it's like, okay, you know, and so I messaged him and he came in. And I was mentioning this story to my daughter because the key thing was that Mark showed up the next morning at 6.30 to tell me we're bouncing in new code today with the fix that you found. You were right. It was the Commodore, you know, fast load cartridge key. And, you know, from that moment, he had my undying devotion, completely undying devotion. And... So I was telling my daughter the story and Ken turns around and says, there's a little piece of the story that you don't know. <laughs> the last time he threw her out of his office, Ken's cube was right next to Mark's office. He was the only one who had door on his office. And Ken went in right afterwards and goes, um, Mark, uh, you know, Jan might just be right. Cause he always had this real slow, easy way of talking. And he's like, what? And he goes, well, I heard her yesterday. <laughs> and I looked into it and uh, she actually is right. <laughs> and I think I have the fix for it. <laughs> oh, wow. So, but from that point on, that was like, okay, you're natural for QA. You know, you're now our QA manager. And I'm like, okay, but I'm one. And the next thing we know, we got our second one, who was our technical documentation writer, um, but very good at doing things in small pieces. I mean, in, in the detail we needed for test plans and all that stuff. So that's how QA grew. And he had a very strong opinion about things and he would get excitable and people expected it. I, I got hit in the head one time in the lab because I kept humming. I had headphones on listening to music so nobody would hear it but i didn't realize i was humming <laughs> so i'd keep telling me would you stop please would you stop please 
And then the third or fourth time around, he just shot a five and a half inch disc across the lab. <laughs> so, Aren't you glad it wasn't a three and a half? Or a CD. <laughs> I don't know. Those five and a halves had pretty sharp corners. <laughs> it reached the point where he was arguing with another time about how it couldn't possibly be me that was crashing and locate. And I'm like, okay, Mark, I think it's because I'm typing too fast. I type faster than anybody. It doesn't happen for me. And I'm like, yeah, it happens for me. So he puts it into debug and sure enough, boom, I was typing too fast for the field. And so he ended up having to put a throttle on it. But that was the last time he told me I was wrong about a bug. And another time as we got larger and larger, I actually went head to toe. And by this time, Mike Connors was in charge. He was the executive VP for operations or technology, or I don't remember. The Mike Connors title. was the executive VP of uh, development and technology. That's the right name. <laughs> but uh, we had someone to be unnamed who was determined to force some code in and the developer was not going to be available. He was going to be out of town. And that's a rule that Ken and I had from day one. If I can't grab a developer to tell us what's wrong, it can't go in. We'd had one issue with that once before. And this guy was going to be on vacation. It was going to be a flash cut of the entire system. No way to roll it back. And our test system had crashed for three days when we were trying to test it. So... No, this cannot go, especially if they're out of town. <laughs> forms. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I have another forum story. <laughs> What's forms? So we went round and round. You know, so I explained to Mike, I said, Mike, we can't do that. <laughs> and Mike looked at me and he goes, I realize that you're very passionate about this. And I believe you're right but you need to describe to me how you're right so that I can stop this thing. And as soon as I finished it, you know, he turned around and said, okay, thank you. And he called the person into his office <laughs> and you could hear the shouting going on and it didn't go in. And my relationship with that person never quite recovered from that moment, but you know, but I saved the system. Well, good for you, right? That's, that's a classic QA story, right? You, you have to protect production. I mean, it's really like accept the risk, right? <laughs> of releasing it to prod untested with no developer, right? Or it's not going in, right? What's forms? When we were a client server application, all the forms resided on the disk that people looked at. Oh, F form definition operator like that? that yes, yeah. FDO. Okay, that, that FDO code, okay. Yeah, so they were doing a major change to it to make it more efficient because in the client days, all the forms were on the client. So people had to wait for a new disk to come out before they could get new features. And so Lou and Anne created, you know, with Mark, this language where we could do forms or a lot of the form content from the disks up on the screen so that they would get it at the time or that basically they'd had a base form here and then 
the system could give them all the rest of the stuff that went with it. It saved them from a lot of client updates, <laughs> which in, for some people cost them money every time they connected, you know, by phone or whatever. So that was the FBO language pulling it off of the client and onto the server. And it was used everywhere. Anything that showed up to a client, registration, anything, you know, had that forms language embedded in it. Was this related to Rain Man? This was before Rain Man. Okay. But the change that they were looking to put in was to support Rain Man. And it was a great idea. I still have a t-shirt. <laughs> Rain Man Plus. <laughs> but it was this type of thing that you couldn't do. It was actually how I finally got. Um, we only had two test systems at that point. And that's how we finally got four test systems that supported replication so that a change being made here could be made here. And so that I could blow up the master account for database on this tandem, but you know, not mess with this tandem and have a place where we could actually pull production data in and play with it and stuff like that. But that's basically what I did when I became a QA architect. They used me as a mark person so it would be like, okay, guys, look, we need source management. And Ken had always done all the source management. I do install sometimes in the morning form, but, you know. And, you know, it's like, we need real source management. We need to not know that when these developers all put their stuff in production, find out then that they don't talk to each other, or they didn't include this one, or this include, or that. So we, had, we built source management, and they had to use it. And I was the bad cop. Then we moved to configuration management and because that, that really means so much more. It's not just about, you know, source management. And so we brought in Paul Konigsberg and, you know, but basically I went in and enforced the processes to begin with. And there'd be a lot of bruised elbows, broken egos and stuff like that. But then the person I hired, that was the good cop. <laughs> So they would do anything for them, even follow the stuff that I had tried in because they didn't have somebody in their face telling them they had to do it. And did that with the test tools department under Ralph Mays, the test system management. And, and I'm sorry, I'm babbling on, but that's how release management. No, it's, it's super interesting. It, it's great. <laughs> I mean, it's the growing pains of a company, right? I mean, that, that, that's like, it, you learn stuff the hard way, you know, once or twice, and then it's like never again, right? And so you have to be bad cop because you've already seen it go sideways, right? Mm -hmm. By the time I got involved with configuration management, Jan was like God. And I walk in because I'm now managing enterprise management. I'm getting to roll out, I'm getting ready to roll out a whole new suite of tools. And nobody wants to talk to Jan. I'm like, why? She's sweet. You will learn a lot from her. You just have to listen. That would be the problem. So I had to go through because we had to drop agents onto every single server in the complex. And at that time, that was not an easy task. We're talking about almost 5,000 different systems that have to have these agents rolled out onto them. Well, before we do that, we have to pass QA. 
that was my one requirement. The, the, the sign-off that I got from every director in operations in order to do this allowed me to do it, but I had to get Jan's blessing first. And that wasn't too difficult, except for the tool set that you have to use to get into configuration management didn't necessarily lend itself to the type of tools that we were releasing because they were all script-based. So we had Perl scripts, we had shell scripts, we had different kinds of scripts. And, and so I remember actually having to sit down with someone. It wasn't you, Jan. I don't remember who I sat down with to make sure that the systems were configured properly to support our new tool set. And that was probably the biggest hangup to deploying our enterprise monitoring system. I think, well, that and actually securing the people to, to do the work. The enterprise monitoring system, was it like a bunch of homegrown scripts or was it like a, something you bought off the shelf? It was an off the shelf management orchestration system that you could extend with various plugins, uh, various scripts. The scripts would then communicate with the central agent that either sat on each system individually or sat on a monitoring system. One of my other staff members actually wrote a listener, a Perl listener, um, that was fast enough that it, it could take in information from up to about 300 systems and correlate the error log entries and insert them into the management system. Um, I don't remember the name of the management system now. What was it like a Nagios or something? Or It's similar to Nagios. Um, we have used Nagios there. Um, but it was, um, I'm drawing a blank on what the name of the central system was. Though. I don't even think they're still around. We loved their demo. After we brought them in, we were accused of of buying vaporware. Wow! Um, because their their very base system did nothing. Uh, but once you started configuring it, and it took my team almost a year to work through all of the ins and outs of the various systems. The one system set that we could never get anything on was our Stratus systems. And we finally decided, well, okay, we can feed that information in other ways. But for all of our Unix systems, all of our Windows systems that did all of the image compression for our internet browsing, all of those were included in the system. And this major monitoring system, because I had taken the time to write the error management and resolution tracking service where all of our developers would go in and they would create their error numbers and then they would record what it was and what it meant and what you had to do about it. That's one of the things that really facilitated the knock taking on so much more responsibility, almost to the point where we were able to restart the entire service ourselves without having to contact anyone. And that was completely unheard of before the formation of the knock. Um, and that's why I was so thrilled to go into enterprise management because I already knew the problems that they were dealing with. And I wanted to give our network operations center the tools that they needed. But in order to do that, I had to work with Jan and her team and convince my folks that no, no, Jan really doesn't buy it. She, she's, she's a good person. <laughs> it's like, listen to my concerns. I'll listen to yours. Let's come up with a better idea. And that's always been my mentality. It's just that I'm passionate about what I believe, but I'm also a teacher at heart. Yeah. 
Do any of y'all remember Janet Hunter? She wrote a great interactive game on the um, on the Stratus called Habitat. For Commodore. Yes. For Commodore, yes. It was the first virtual reality MMPORG. It was an MMORPG. Not that yep. anybody will admit it now. But back then, they called her the mother of virtual reality. It was reality. the most fantastic game. It was, you made friends. It, it, was, it was sort of like, you know, World of Warcraft, you know, on a, on a much friendlier level. It, it was amazing. And uh, it, it, I don't know if it ever got any, it, it had some public play, I guess, for a little bit, but it was. It's still out there, believe it or not, wow. in Japan. I'm surprised it hasn't been turned into a phone app. Yeah, it was amazing. I, I loved that uh, that game. And it's just sad to see it go. Well, could you play it on AOL or, or how would you play it? Um, no, it was Commodore based. Commodore 64, that's right. And somebody needed to port it and they really weren't sure it could be ported, but it was done with Lucasfilms. Yep. You know, it was Lucasfilms Habitat. Interesting. And she and Ken Huntsman got flown out to the Skywalker Ranch to work on it. Fantastic game, really enjoyable. But for it was so novel and so unusually new for back then. It got sold twice and then moved on to the place in Japan. And apparently, in Japan, they love it. They're eating it up. Wow! And it doesn't look that much different. <laughs> Some really fun things happened in that game. You know, uh, you you bought and sold things out of vending machines. Vendors. And at, at one time. <laughs> Yeah. And at one time, um, somebody figured out that on this one side of the world, there was a vending machine that you could buy a widget for $12. And if you w walked all the way to the other side or teleported out, however you did it to the other world, you could sell that same widget for $24 and double your money. <laughs> And overnight, well, whenever they when they came back in and looked at the system the next morning, the economy had drastically shifted because people had found this exploit and taken advantage of it. <laughs> That's great. Because, you know, it was written in such a way that, you know, they could come in and, and see how does the economy look, you know? Yeah. That's really cool. <laughs> that, was, that was fun. <laughs> you had asked some questions, Steve, about, you know, what made AOL so special. And not just the people, not just the work environment, but I think for all of us, it was the time at which we were there. Yeah. It was a lot more free in the workplace. It wasn't so hands-off. You know, you were able to walk up and hug somebody. You were able to flirt. Mm -hmm. You were able to curse. You were able to listen to people shout. You were able to shout. You were able to, you know just deal with things that you could have a beer bash, you know, you could have some alcohol on the proper premises, you know, it was, it was a different work environment. Um, and you won't see that kind of work environment anymore. Not even, not even most startups these days have that kind of behavior because HR has really stepped in and, you know, I'm not going to say overstepped the sensitivity button, but in some ways they have really overstepped that sensitivity button. I think, well, and not even the sensitivity is the liability side of things. Uh, there's that too. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, thinking about things I did in my career, I remember walking into a conference meeting one day with several of the IT vice presidents and saying, 
So you need to change your password because it's your wife's first name. You need to change your password because I think it's your dog's name. And you need to change your password because it's a, and then walked right back out. But that was my job. That's what I was told to do. You know, <laughs> and, you know and somebody came to my office a little later, said, you could have picked a different time. He was like, hey, I was told to do it then. You know? <laughs> like, I was just following my boss's instructions. You know? At least you. At least you didn't say that you need to change it because it's your mistress's first name. Oh, I didn't know. I, I just made a, a, an assumption. I wasn't going to say. <laughs> well, how'd you know the password? Because I cracked them. Oh, awesome. Oh, it's part of my job. <laughs> hey, the the system that Stratus sort of came down from, there was a, a system that whenever I was in college, we were one of the, the second university in the United States to have it, was called Honeywell Multics, M-U-L-T-I-C-S. Oh, Multics. And it was the yeah. one of the first uh, interactive computer systems. You didn't use punch cards with it. And it was a great system. And it was also one of the first uh, computer systems or interactive computer systems, multi-user systems that could get a top secret clearance because of the way they did their uh, network security. It was actually able to get DOD clearance. So it was uh, the government was involved with, with purchasing some as well. Um, so that was the computer system that I worked with whenever I was in college. And it also was my, my foot in the door in the Washington, D.C. area. One of the things they did was they were so sure of their security and the, that the way you checked someone to make sure that their access was correct, they gave you the encrypted password file in, in clear. Any, anybody could get to the, uh, to the password file in its encrypted form. And the way that you checked somebody is you said, what's your password? And the software gave it to you in its encrypted form. You checked it. And if the encrypted form in the database matched the encrypted form that the, that was handed to you, you knew that they had validated who they were. You never saw it in clear text. But somebody, one of these uh, university students got really smart and he used the algorithm that was available to anyone and he encrypted the dictionary. <laughs> then he took boat and he said, any matches in the password database? Oh, look. And then he, he took this list and he said, you know, the head of this department's password is boat. The head of this department's password is dog. And instead of rewarding this person for finding such an obvious security flaw, they banned him from the major. I think it was such a terrible mistake that they did this. But, you know, the start of, you know, how hacking and security flaws and fixing security bugs came about, you know, clever people like that. Yeah, definitely. That's actually really a, a great part of working at AOL. Well, yes, there were people who, who were absolutely sure of themselves constantly until they were proven wrong, um, a la Jan. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I absolutely loved about it working there was that everyone's goal was to give the best service possible. You know, it, it's, it's, everyone was there because they wanted to be there. It, it wasn't, yeah. I'm, I'm working here because I need a job. It was all about really, it was, it was, it was camaraderie. It was, it was friendliness. It was knowing that you could walk into almost anyone's office and have something to talk about, even if you didn't share any common interest because AOL was so pervasive at that point. Um, 
the 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 friendliness you know the 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 beer bashes i think contributed a lot to that and it was really fun because for the first six months i was working at aol i was too young to drink (laughs) and and my supervisor knew that and my supervisor pulled me aside and said well we have beer bashes on fridays you're too young to drink if i see you with a beer i won't necessarily say anything but if i see you with two i will (laughs) <laughs> and it was it was it was really easy for me because I didn't drink at the time and just really marveled at the fact that it wasn't just our customer service department it that came out for it it was people from the upper echelon Steve Case was at them on a regular basis so the ability to meet and interact with everyone in the company was one of the most crucial things we were inspired to do the best we could do to work as, you know, our best, not, it wasn't just a job. We, we wanted to work there. We wanted to do the best that we could. Oh goodness. Yes. Because we, we were, we were making headlines. We were doing, you know, I hate to use that. I hate to use that term, but we were the internet. <laughs> but no, I need to been there. I went to an e-commerce class because I had to, for the degree I was finally going to go get. And they were telling me, arguing with me, in fact, that e-commerce didn't exist until 1995 when HTTPS came into gear. And I'm like, okay, I used my Commodore and I bought airline tickets and paid for them by credit card and picked them up at the airport. Tell me how that is not e-commerce. Another book tells you that email only came about, sorry, I don't remember what the book says because it wasn't true. Mark, believe it or not, was the one who had the impetus to go out to CompuServe. Prodigy. Uh, No, Prodigy was us. We started out with Promenade on Prodigy. They would advertise with us. Prodigy as the service came out, but it was quickly died after it allowed AOL to advertise on it. And it. Yes. Well, sort of. It was Reader's Digest was the one, I think. Anyway, it was an R company back then, but this was like back in 1987, 88. And Mark came up with a way for them to be able to, you know, all working together to talk to each other across services with the app extension so that the different intranets could talk to each other for email. It was email only at that point, but that started then. Oh, that's right. We didn't have an internet mail gateway until Steve Skolnick was hired and put in our first internet mail gateways. Um, It was actually before then. It was with Apple Link. We were able to do the at whatever. Mark did the first real mail system, but before we could do the other part of interacting with everybody, that was Skolnick. Yeah. You know, but they created a mechanism on the internet for the at mails. Yeah. So, Brian, were you in the knock the night of Black Tuesday? Oh, the day that AOL went down for 24 hours? Yeah. Yeah, no, that was the reason that I wasn't allowed to take vacations after that. (laughs) Were you the one who called Scott and I? Yeah. Because we showed up like five minutes later and you were like, where the hell were you? (laughs) (laughs) 
my, my now ex-husband and I, who both worked at AOL, were taking dancing lessons. It was a hobby that we did to force ourselves to leave the office at least one night a week <laughs> because we had this really bad habit of being at work 12 hours a day. The data center that was having a problem was on Westwood Center. Our dance studio was two buildings down and we were in our dance class and first his pager went off and then my pager went off and we looked at our pagers. We're like, this isn't good. We have to leave. We apologized to our dance teacher, took off, got in our car, drove down two buildings, pulled into the knock and you had a very shocked look on your face. <laughs> and we just kind of started walking down the data center, turning things off. <laughs> Wait, so why did it go down for 24 hours? They pushed out bad route tables. <laughs> <laughs> it was BGP? Uh, it was BGP? I think it was BGP. There were a couple of different Black Wednesdays. This was the first one. Okay, then that was Marty's issue when our light wave went down and we lost our interconnectivity between the office on Westwood Center Drive in McLean. But we had to shut Westwood Center Drive off. Yeah, because I remember basically being told, walk down the aisles and just turn things off. It doesn't matter what the state of the machine is, just turn it off. (laughs) Yeah, I was there for that one. There was one later on, more towards 97, I want to say. I remember that one. Where the service went down for 24 hours, and it was a bad set of configs. Yeah, it was a bad set of network route configs. But I was actually off that day. Oh, well then, no, that was the one I'm talking about. Cause someone, someone at the knock had called us. I guess it wasn't you. Cause it, it was one where it was the, it was the network outage was where we got called. Then that would have either been Denny or Sarah. It was, oh, it was Denny. It was Denny who called us. Yeah. Gosh, I've forgotten sweet Denny. Oh. <laughs> well, of course, there's the time when AOL chat went down. I was on my way in the air to California to install EOWorld. And the developer, who shall not be mentioned, decided it was okay to put it in and to leave. (laughs) And there was a bug in it, and it wasn't working. So it ended up taking down all of chat. And it took Ken about six hours to back it out and bring in the new code. That one hit the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. And then was the America Offline, which was a result of someone not listening to all of us in a management meeting and deciding that it was okay to drop every single computer magazine with an AOL disc in it on the same day. Oh, is it a marketing thing? We got flooded. <laughs> and they dropped them all to go at the same day. And we had told her not to. I had told her not to. Mark told her not to. And she did it anyway. You know, and I said, there's the porch process. And they kept saying, oh, no, that won't be a problem. And I'm like, yes, it will. And it took a couple seconds. And Mark goes, yeah, she's right. You need to drag them out. And we eventually changed porch. So registration, because every person who got a disc had to re-register it, which meant going through the registration process. So... <laughs> It's just what you said reminded me of something. I actually have a Quora answer on this one as well because it was fun. Um, what was the name of that alien invasion uh, movie that Will Smith was in? Independence Day. Independence Day. Okay. When uh, when Independence Day was out, AOL 
rented out the theater so that anyone from AOL who wanted to see it could see it. So we filled the theater in Reston, Virginia with AOL employees. And there's one spot in the movie where Will Smith is hacking into the mothership. And he's tapping away on the keyboard and there's a split screen and you hear modem noises and then you hear connected. I'm sitting in the back of the theater and when it says connected, I said, welcome, you've got mail. <laughs> Literally brought the theater down. It took five minutes almost for them to, to restore order. <laughs> It was it was like shooting fish in a barrel. We were all AOL employees. <laughs> oh my god, that That's was great. great. <laughs> I don't know if um, if Craig or Ersi were here then, but remember the Tom Hanks movie "You've Got Mail." Oh yes, yeah. I still I still send messages, you know, IMs to to friends and say "You've Got Mail," you know, <laughs> YGM, and they look at me like, "Huh?" I'm like. Never mind, you're too you're too young. Wow. <laughs> yes, and then of course there's the uh, the old story of you know instant messenger being named Stalker. Was it really? As, as its code name prior to being released. <laughs> Wait, it was called Stalker, like a code name or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our development code name. <laughs> Interesting. Um, instant messages were used on the Commodore called instant messages. And that messenger with the buddy list and everything was totally stalker, internally anyway. <laughs> but one of the things, like when I was talking about the historical rewrites of history, one of the coolest things about working at AOL was the new stuff that we came up with. And everything we came up with was something that nobody else had figured out or thought of doing yet. We were always there first. And eventually, just like for us old timers, there wasn't anything new to do. You know, after we had done all this stuff, what else is there? And we tried going the channel route, but I was reading in some of the people on Wikipedia and another unnamed person was saying how they built auditoriums, you know, how they launched auditoriums. And we had auditoriums doing live interviews on the Commodore. So tell me if that was on the Commodore in 1987 and 19 through 89, you tell me how it only started when you started in 96. What are auditoriums? Um, people would go into the auditoriums. We'd have, li we'd have live people come in and talk and they'd say something and RJ Scott would help moderate it for them. And if they didn't know how to use a computer, he would be the hands for them as they would talk about what was going on. It wasn't live audio, but they had the auditoriums and we had people. It, it was billed as AOL Live. And what people would do is these. Well, it was before it was AOL. Those auditoriums were on the Commodore. And I'm not complaining because we got so much better. I mean, we did. We grew, we grew with the company, we grew with the technology that was out there. I mean, before they had the PC, mm -hmm. we actually were doing Tandy Link. PC Link. On the Tandy computers from Texas. Really? Well, first it was Tandy Link. And then with PC Juniors, it came out, it became PC Link. And then we had Promenade for the OS 
guys. Oh, OS two. OS X. It was it was Promenade for the IBM PS two. Yeah, OS two. Sorry. And we just kept growing because the key to AOL originally was being able to be included with computers when they were sold. One thing that I, I will say is that AOL, as we all know it, would not have existed without Apple. And and this this is this is my favorite story, and and I wasn't there for it, so I I was told this. So Jan, you'll have to like fill in the blanks. Um, <laughs> AOL was America Online itself was originally supposed to be a service for Apple computers, and then Apple backed out like days before AOL was supposed to be launched. Apple backed out of the agreement, and AOL decided at that at that time they were quantum computer systems, I think. Um, decided, okay, well, we'll go ahead and launch it, but what do we call it? I don't remember who it was that came up with America Online. A couple of things there. Apple Link actually existed for a year and a half. They came out and we had a launch talk meeting. And they were like, first we design the t-shirt, then we design the product. <laughs> and all of us had these Apple Link you know, it was like Apple Link and Quantum linked at last with these two little hands going like that. <laughs> but it lasted for a year and a half because Apple got pissed off because we kept telling them, no, you can't roll in content in the middle of the night. And, you know, we told you that up front. And then they wanted to approve all the changes we made to the system. And it was like, you know, Forget it. We finished working on their Newton to create mail for it. And we had the Mac product in progress. The way Steve described it in the breakup meeting was, well, you know, we got in bed with somebody who was bigger than we were and they rolled over. <laughs> so, you know, we're going this way now. And, you know, it was... It was a fight sometimes to get us into the Microsoft computers, hard drives, the whole story about the internet browser being used. It wasn't because it was the bigger for the market or whatever. It was because they paid us $5 million. If we could get you know a dollar a user, if we could get 5 million people switched over to it by X date, and if we didn't have 5 million users by that date, we would get $0. And pushing out a new browser was heavy cost download-wise for people. But we were able to do it. We put out, I want to say it was 3.1. Maybe it was late. It, maybe it was 4.0 where we had it installed in the software. So they just got it on magically. And then Apple came back to us and wanted to have us do their eWorld. Mm -hmm. And we did. Next time on AOL Underground. I think that, you know, we wouldn't have hired any one of those script kiddies going out there and manipulating the credit cards, but the people who are out there actually testing our code and looking for loopholes in our code were the kind of people that we were looking for if we could find them and if we could make them offers.
Welcome to Cyberspace. 